If you grab your Bibles now, we're not going to be in the book of Mark today. Rather, we're going to travel to the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 15 through 17. So open up there with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find the the book of Revelation, chapter 7, on page 1032. It's the last book in the Bible. John here describes what is coming to those who persevere through suffering. So let's give our attention to the book of the the Lord. Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray again. Oh, Father, we stand in need of Your Word this morning. We stand in need of encouragement. We pray, would you encourage us through your word? We may stand in need of warning, and so we pray that you would warn us with your word. We stand in need of joy, so we pray, give us joy in your word. Father, would you bless the word now? Would you use it powerfully in our hearts to transform us and shape us and to make us a different sort of people? We pray this in your son's good and gracious name. Amen. So this morning I want to approach this text we're in through a, a set of questions that will help set us up to deal with this text well. So the set of questions are these. How do you speak to someone who is suffering? How do you offer counsel to someone who is in pain? How do you come alongside, if we picture the life of suffering as a journey, and start walking alongside someone who is suffering? Or we can turn this and make it personal among ourselves as we look at our own lives. How do we ourselves grapple with these unpleasant realities of sufferings when it comes in our own laps? How do we find meaning and hope and purpose in the midst of it? As we think about these questions, we realize that they're important to ask because, because this world is just full of suffering. You can't escape it. It touches every part of our lives. It touches our loved ones as well. Now, as we think about these questions, there are different ways that we can approach the issue of suffering and offering counsel to those who suffer, and there are many wrong ways to do this. I'm going to offer you three wrong ways before we look at what John does. First, there's the way of of illusion. And so in this approach, the counselor comes to the person who is suffering and discounts the, the suffering of the sufferer. And this approach takes many, many forms. Sometimes we, we quietly suggest that those who are suffering are speaking about their suffering in a, a disproportionate way. And so as we think about it in the back of our minds, if we're the counselor, we're thinking, you've just made a molehill into a mountain. It's actually not that bad. 
Other times we're just brutally honest with the sufferer. Well, your pain really isn't that bad. Just ignore it. It will go away. So the counselor is saying, well, you just need to move on with your life. Life goes on. Get on with it. And there's another approach, a second approach, and this is the the gutted up approach to suffering. And this approach to to suffering equates suffering with the pain that is found in exercising. Suffering is something merely to be conquered and and pushed past. Just like the long distance runner pushes past the, the burning in his lungs and the ache in his legs, the counselor says you just need to pull up your bootstraps and get moving on. What doesn't kill you is only going to make you stronger in this life. And third, there's the the positive mental outlook strategy to suffering. And the gist of this approach is that we just need to control our our thought life, and by controlling our thoughts, we can be healed, we can be removed from our suffering. The counselor seeks to, to coax the sufferer into thinking positively about his or her situation. Teaching, well, well, positive thoughts attract good things and negative thoughts attract bad things. If you just change your thinking, if you just start thinking about good things... Well, good things are going to come to you. They're going to attract to you like a magnet. And when we start thinking about these different approaches, we soon find them to be quite powerless and lacking. They all severely discount or trivialize the suffering of others. They're all preaching, you really aren't suffering. It really isn't that bad. However, the greatest problem with these approaches to suffering is that they're not distinctively Christian, and they have no distinct Christian hope infused in them. And here we need to begin to learn address suffering from the perspective of the Scriptures. And so when we go to the book of Revelation, we find in the book of Revelation a God-centered worldview of absolutely everything. In the book of Revelation, John teaches us a God-centered view of history. He teaches us a God-saturated view of salvation, of worship, of church life, of, of mission. And here in our text, Revelation chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, John presents to us a God-centered view of counseling in the midst of suffering. Now we have to understand that John didn't write the book of Revelation to be used to speculate about the end times. He didn't write the book of Revelation to be turned into a chart. Rather, he wrote this book to encourage the church in the midst of suffering and intense trial. This book is is extremely practical and pastoral in nature. So if you take your Bibles this morning and flip back to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, what we find when this book begins is seven letters to seven churches. And when we look and look over these seven letters to the seven churches, we get a picture of what the church was experiencing when John wrote this letter to them. And in these letters, we find Jesus addressing each church individually and personally. Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus saying this to them, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Jesus reveals the situation of the church in Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. Be faithful unto death. Again, Jesus addresses the church in Pergamum. He tells us about their situation. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He speaks to the church in Philadelphia. He says, I know that you have but little power. In short, we can see that John is writing to a people who face discrimination and alienation because of their faith in the Messiah. They were a people who underwent physical violence, emotional violence, and even death for what they believed and what they lived out. They were economically 
at a disadvantage for what they believed. They're physically at a disadvantage. And so what we see in the seven churches is a people who knew, who knew suffering intimately. And so, as we, so we need to see how John counsels these suffering people in the book of Revelation. We need to see how he, he preaches and how he reasons with them. And what we find in the book of Revelation is so illuminating. John, as a wise prophet and pastor, as he addresses the suffering people of God, he never once discounts or discredits what they're going through. He never once says, that isn't significant. You're making too big of a deal out of that. Rather, he consistently and constantly points his people, the people that he's ministering to, to God and to the Lamb. And what follows this morning, what we're going to do this morning, is a meditation on suffering and hope from these three verses. And what we're going to see in this text is that John serves us this morning. He serves the suffering church by lodging three rocks of confidence under our feet. And so the three rocks are these. First, John lodges the reality of a promise-keeping God. Second, he provides us with a picture of a God who will provide the suffering church satisfaction. And third, John brings us to see a compassionate God. So we can begin this morning looking at the text by looking at the first point, a promise-keeping God. So when the winds of suffering begin to blow in your life and when the waves of persecution begin to break upon you, when, when pain begins to surface, we need somewhere to turn. We all instinctively turn somewhere. We need some kind of footing that's going to hold us up, that's going to anchor us in one spot. David cries out in Psalm 61 saying, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Psalm 61, David is in trouble. He's weary, he's downcast, he's suffering. What does David do in his suffering? What is David's hope? Where does he turn in his predicament? We find him calling out, praying to God. And if you read on in Psalm 61, David sings this. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. David knew of only one hope in his suffering. He only knew of one rock that could hold him in the waves. He only knew of one saving refuge, the faithful promise-keeping God. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. This is a biblical view of suffering and offering counsel. And what we see in the book of Revelation is John has the same instinct as David does. What John is going to do in our text this morning is lead us to the faithful promise-keeping God. And so looking at our text this morning, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you'll notice right away that these three verses before us echo another part of the book of Revelation. In our text, we hear these phrases. They are before the throne of God. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more nor thirst any more. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So as students of the Bible, we're thinking, well, where have I heard these words before? Where have they, they showed up before in the book of Revelation? Well, the answer is they appear at the very end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, the scene where God has put away every enemy and established the new heavens and the new earth where his kingdom is over all. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 4, we find the same language being used again that we find in chapter 7. 
John records the word of God. He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor dying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What John is doing here, making this connection between Revelation 21 and chapter 7, is he's, he's giving us a foretaste of what is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. We're getting a little glimpse of what God will be for his people eternally. But we also have to say something more than this. Verses 15 through 17 are not just a foretaste of coming salvation. They're not just a preview, but they are also an assurance of coming salvation. These verses are an assurance that God will keep his word of what he will do in the new heavens and the new earth. John points out to us, and he's pointing out to the seven churches, that no matter how bleak your circumstances may be, God is going to come through on his word. He is faithful, and he keeps all his promises. So as we're thinking about this, we have to ask, well, well, how does John assure us in this text of God's faithfulness? We have to understand that John is not an original theologian. All of these interesting scenes and, and vivid metaphors, all these strange things we meet in the book of Revelation are not original to him. Meaning that John is not making up his theology, but he's borrowing it from somewhere, and he's borrowing it directly from the Old Testament. And in these three verses before us, John is borrowing his language directly from the prophet Ezekiel. So if you know anything about the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel starts as a depressing book in many ways. Ezekiel tells a story about God's chosen people, Israel. What did Israel do? Well, they stopped serving the Lord. And the time of reckoning had come. God's prophets had come to the people and called them back, called them back, called them back. But they refused to listen to the Lord. And so God would punish his people for their continual and rebellious sin. And so in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel promises the destruction of Jerusalem. He tells that the people that they're going to be drawn out of the Holy Land and be enslaved by by foreign captors. He even, in, in this provocative vision, sees the glory of the Lord leave the temple, symbolizing that God has left Israel. While there is gloom and darkness in the book of Ezekiel, there is also glimmers of hope breaking through the clouds. As you read on in the book of Ezekiel, we find hope, and the hope is this. God is going to come for his rebellious people, and he's going to save them. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 24 through 28, reveal this hope in particular detail. In these verses, Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 8, we, we see that God is going to do something for his people. He's going to give Israel a new king, a new shepherd who will righteously rule over them. Even more, God is going to bring the people through this leadership back into the Holy Land. Even more importantly, God is going to again set his sanctuary in their midst. Chapter 37, verse 27 reveals the very center hope of this promise. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And what John is doing, if we travel back to the book of Revelation, is, he's, is he, in these three verses, he's picking up on the promises made to Israel in the book of Ezekiel, and what he is doing is he's taking them, and then he's applying them to the church. So what is God going to do for his church who is suffering? Well, God promises to the church he will shelter them with his very presence. 
God is going to tabernacle amongst them. God promises to the church that they will have the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous Davidic King as their shepherd. John is consciously bringing these Old Testament prophecies, promises to bear upon the church through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this connection we make between the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation seems academic in nature. This is something you do when you, you take out your cross-reference Bible and you're connecting the dots. But John wants us to see this as an important connection to make. And when we make this connection between the book of Revelation, it's actually a faith-building exercise. This connection, if we use it rightly in our hearts, should buttress and support our faith. And John's message through this connection is so simple and straightforward. He's saying this to us. All the promises of God found in the Old Testament will come true to those who belong to Jesus by faith. In Christ, the whole Bible, both Old and New Testaments, and all the promises therein support and confirm and establish our faith. John is looking to the seven churches and he's saying, not one of God's promises will fall short for the people of God, no matter how bad your suffering is. God has never lied. His word in Ezekiel is still good and he is renewing it to you. God's hands are not shortened, but he will bring it about and you can count on it. And as we think about the situation of the seven churches, facing discrimination, physical suffering, emotional suffering, we can say that they were, they were experiencing real suffering. And what do they need in real suffering? Well, they need real promises and they need real assurances that this God who promises is going to be true to his word. And that's what John does. He's picking up on these promises and he's renewing them for the church. These are true for you and God will keep his word. So brothers and sisters, this morning, we need to apply this redemptive logic to our hearts. We see this connection between Ezekiel and the book of Revelation, and John wants us to leverage that for our own good in our own lives. And so Christian, are you struggling in the darkness of depression this morning? Take this connection between the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation and lodge it deep in your hearts because it's pointing out to you a rock that is higher than you, the promise-keeping God. Christian, are you surrounded and engulfed with grief and loss? John is preaching to us through this connection. There is a rock higher than you, a promise-keeping God. He will not give up on his word. Christian, are you undergoing the fiery trial of temptation? Are you feeling the darts of the evil one? They're, they're hitting you. John is preaching. He's saying, well, lay hold of the rock that is higher than you. This God will keep his promises. He will deliver on them. Christian, are you filled with, with doubt? Is your vision hazy? Well, John is preaching. He says, lean upon the solid rock. His promises are good and true, and they are renewed to you this morning. We have good news. The only way we can survive suffering is by hoping, by grasping, by clinging to the promise-making, promise-keeping God. And that's what John is working for here. So as we move from our first point into our second, we see that God does not only keep his promises to us, but the content of his promises are eternally satisfying. And the content of these promises given to the church, renewed to the church in the book of Revelation, are what sustains the saints of God in their suffering. And so again, we need to reiterate this point. As John cares for the seven churches under his care, he is never brash about their suffering. 
He never discounts it. He never once says it's an illusion or something to be looked past. Rather, John freely acknowledges the suffering of God's people. We see it in the seven letters to the seven churches. He isn't afraid to deal with their pain. And we even find shadows of this pain in our text. Verses 16 and 17, John addresses the church again. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So in these verses, John is pointing ahead. He's saying, look ahead. But when we're looking ahead, we're also realizing where we are in the present. And verses 16 and 17 tell us something about the present day. In the present, we live in a time of want. In the present, we live in a time of hunger and thirst and unbearable heat. We live in a time of, of tears. We live in a time of unmet expectations. And though John doesn't shy away from the church's suffering, he names them, he, he puts them before us. He's not content to let, let the church simply sit in their suffering. He's not going to let us wallow in our own pain. And John does this because he knows the end of the story. He knows the end of the story, that new creation is coming to those who belong to Jesus. He knows that the all-satisfying God is coming, and he points us directly to the satisfying promises of God. And so in these verses before us, 15 through 17, we are held out with the promises of new creation. And to understand the, the glory of what John is holding out to us, we must turn our eyes away from new creation and consider what old creation was and is. So what is old creation? What are we inhabiting now? Well, the answer is where we live in a world of Genesis chapter 3. The world we live in right now is a, a world dealing with the effects of sin and rebellion. Old creation is marked by, by curse everywhere you look. It is marked by futility everywhere you go. Just think about it. Mankind toils under the sun. And what does all that toil and sweat result in? Well, we find drought and famine and scarcity. And sin does not only affect our work, but it touches every area of our life. There's not one reality in old creation that is not tainted and spoiled and polluted by sin. We look at our own families, they're turned inside out and upside down. We look at husbands, they neglect their wives. We look at wives, they usurp their husbands. We look at marriages, they're shattered. We look at relationships in family. Genesis chapter 4, brother murders brother. We look at, uh, at our world and we see death reigning supreme. And worst of all about old creation is that there's a great rupture between man and God. No longer does God's glorious and gracious presence dwell with man, but rather man is driven far from the presence of God. But we have to see what John is doing here. He's telling us all of these things of old creation are reversed in new creation. Our text reveals the systematic reversal of old creation. Scarcity gives way to abundance. Toil gives way to fruitfulness. Tears give way to joy. Drought gives way to living waters. Death gives way to resurrection. But we have to see that the greatest privilege, the greatest benefit, the most profound joy of new creation is found in God himself. We remember that old story in Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And in that story, because of sin, Adam was forever banished from the Garden of Eden. And in his banishment from the garden, he no longer enjoyed the, the presence and fellowship of God. But in the dawning of new creation, God himself will come again to dwell with his people. No longer will there be separation or alienation between God and, and his people. But John sings to us of the coming joy. He says, 
Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. What we see in Revelation chapter 7 is every facet of Genesis chapter 3 undone and reversed, redeemed, and reconciled. So John is doing a pastoral work here. In the trenches of suffering, John is coming to us and he's calling us to look ahead. He's telling us, look ahead to the coming joy. And he's preaching powerfully to us. If joy was simply found in the things of this world, and if we're placing our joy in the things of this world, we're going to shrivel up when when temptation and trial and suffering comes our way. We're going to look like a raisin. John is preaching to us, family cannot satisfy us in our suffering. John is telling us no amount of money stored up for us can make us endure trials. No friendship can keep us from the pit of desperation. No meditation, no medication, no no matter how helpful, can bring us through the dark valleys. He's pointing us to one solution, and it's the, the satisfying God himself. That's what we find promised in this text. John is promising the suffering church, you get God forever. And this is what we need to tell ourselves in our suffering. Our portion will be God. So the question is, well, how does this actually work in the Christian life when we're suffering? How does this work when I'm walking alongside someone who's suffering? How do I encourage them? How do I encourage my own soul? We must take the all-satisfying God and we must meditate on him. We must apply who he is to our hearts. And we can do that this morning. We need to consider the God whose throne we will gather around someday. We need to consider this God who we will serve night and day. We need to consider this God who will shelter us with his very presence. So the question is, well, well, who is this God? So we can say, well, our rock, our support is the eternal God. What great joy we have in him. There is no beginning or end with this God. We can explore and explore this God. We can feast and feast upon this God. And we will never find an end to this God. This is the God we need in our suffering, the eternal God. We can preach to ourselves, our God is good. Saying to ourselves, there is no evil found in this God. There is no rottenness in him. There is no unwholesome characteristic. There is no part of him that is to be rejected or pushed aside. But all of God is good. We can search out his eternal length and height and breadth. And all you will find in this great God is goodness. We can remind ourselves our God is immutable. This God does not change with the seasons. He does not fluctuate or change his mind, but he is constant and unmovable. We are always changing. We are always developing and decaying, but God remains the same. He remains standing eternally so. Our God is independent. Oh, what a joy it is. He never receives, but he only gives. He never relies, but he always supports. Our God needs no one or no thing to make him happy, but he is eternally happy in himself. He's eternally self-sufficient. He is our rock. Our God is trustworthy. He always performs his words. In him there is truth and there is no error. He is not like us who, who waver in our words, but he is reliable. He is always true to what he says. And brothers and sisters, we can go on and on this morning applying God to ourselves. Our God is infinite. He's omnipresent. He's simple and invisible. He's wisdom. He's holy. He's just. He's love. He's merciful. He's sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He is perfect in everything, and he is replete. He is the fullness of it all. And the point is this. 
we cannot consider the joy of new creation too much. We cannot set our affections upon our satisfying God too much in this life. Rather, what this all reveals is our great and reoccurring problem. What is the spiritual disease that infects our hearts? Well, it's that our view of God is just too small. We don't see all of this. Our understanding of God is just too weak and dimmed. What we need in our suffering, what we desperately need in our suffering, is our vision expanded and broadened. That's what John's goal is in the book of Revelation. When you read through the book of Revelation, we we meet a beautiful picture of God after beautiful picture of God after beautiful picture of God. And what he's trying to do with the seven churches, he's showing them, look who your God is. He can sustain you in the midst of whatever trial you are experiencing. That's John's message to us this morning. He says, won't you just soak in these words and meditate on them? Because you will find life here, meditating on who God is for us. Because that is our eternal portion. So we see that John has lodged two sturdy rocks under our feet this morning. Our God is a promise-keeping God. His words are true. We can bank on them and they will hold us fast in suffering. Even more, our God is a satisfying God, and he will be our portion forever. John has one last rock to put on our feet so we can stand in suffering, and it's this. Our God is a compassionate God. So how do we know of the compassion of God? Well, we find an answer in the text before us. The clearest expression of the compassion of God is seen in the one who suffered, the Lord Jesus Christ, the slain lamb. And here we learn something very interesting about the way John works pastorally and theologically. John cannot speak about suffering without bringing up the one who suffered. We cannot understand rightly suffering in this life without actually bringing ourselves to the feet of Jesus. So John does this in verse 17. He begins to teach us about the compassion of God. He says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And we have need just to let these words settle in on us. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. What John is saying in verse 17, if we let it settle in on us, is so strange and so good. Just think about what John is saying. It's strange. Like so many things that we find in the book of Revelation, there is a a paradox in this. The lamb is the shepherd. The lamb is leading the flock of God. The lamb is the guide. That is not how our world works. Lambs do not lead flocks of sheep. Lambs are not shepherds. They are part of the flock. We'd expect to hear, as John preaches to us, that a a burly, bearded Middle Eastern man has taken charge of the flock, and he's reliable and trustworthy. But that's not what John teaches us. That's not his point. But in the strangeness, we see that this statement is so good. It's full of life. The lamb shepherds the flock. The one who leads the sheep of God has been made like the sheep of God. The book of Hebrews picks up on this very idea and makes it clear to us what John is saying. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 says this, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And what is the result of all of this? Well, the author of Hebrews says this, 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We find good news. The lamb shepherds the sheep. So brothers and sisters, when we are in our suffering, when we feel isolated, when we think, well, who actually can relate to the pain I'm feeling? Who has actually felt this before? The book of Revelation points us towards a definite answer. The Lord Jesus Christ can relate to the sufferer, for he himself has suffered. We see here the shepherd of the suffering church is the slain lamb. We need to burrow this down in our hearts because there's so much preciousness here. We are not led by a shepherd who is brash. We are not led by a shepherd who has no clue of what it means to suffer. We are not led by an insensitive shepherd. We're not led by someone who is aloof from what we feel and know and experience. We are not led by someone who is untouched with the pain and brokenness of a Genesis chapter 3 world. But our shepherd is the slain lamb. Our shepherd is the one who suffered at the hands of lawless men. Our shepherd is the one who who bore a crown of thorns. Our shepherd is the one who endured mocking and shame. Our shepherd is the one who died on a tree suspended above the crowds. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says, Because of this, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because of Jesus' acquaintance with suffering and trial, he knows exactly what we need as the suffering people of God. Even better, he knows how to bring it to us. He knows how we need his help. Because Jesus himself is a slain lamb, he will care for us. So brothers and sisters, look into the text. You see the compassion of God before us. We see our comforter. John preaches to us. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. So brothers and sisters, how do you speak to someone who is suffering? How do you walk beside someone who's suffering? As you consider the own pain in your your life, whatever it might be, how do you counsel yourself? What are you saying to yourself in the midst of suffering? Are you operating with the logic of John in the book of Revelation chapter 7? Are you bringing yourself to the feet of God? Are you thinking upon the the promises of God and that God is going to come through on absolutely everything he says? Look into the Old Testament, burrow in as deep as you can, find the promises, and know that they are true for you in Christ Jesus. You can latch on to them. Even better, know that awaiting you at the end of days is the best portion of all God himself, and he will sustain you forever. And John wants us to know, won't you think upon the compassion of God? Do not grow weary, for we have a shepherd, and he is the slain lamb. And he will, with precious words, he will lead us to streams of living water. Let's pray. Father, we need this word. We need to have our reasoning changed. We need to have our logic changed. We need to have our heart's desires changed. We pray, lead us to the rock that is higher than I. Lead us, we pray.